2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 1, verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. We do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you've understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast uh, of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way back to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly, or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say, yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts to deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made my mind up that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did so, that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. This is God's word. My name's Matt, I'm one of the ministers here, and if you're joining us this evening, you join us in uh, the second of a series uh, in this book of 2 Corinthians, a letter uh, written to a, a newish church, in a big, bustling city, the city of Corinth. And it's got a huge amount to say to us as a newish church in a big, bustling city. Lots and lots to say to us. So let's pause and pray and ask for God's help.
Uh, Father, thank you that your word is um, relevant, that you're a God who speaks to us. And Father, what we uh, most need, what we most desire this evening is that we would meet you in your word, that we would see what you're like, that we'd be captivated by the sort of God that you are. Uh, and that then in the light of that, we might be changed, that we might be a people who are more like you, especially as we think about how you love people. We pray that we might be and become uh, a people who are uh, better at loving others, uh, more able to do that, more clear about what it looks like to love others, to love each other and how to bear the cost of that. So be at work amongst us this evening, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. What is true love? What does true love look like? Uh, of course, last Monday, Valentine's uh, Day uh, in America, they spend $189 million on red roses. That's what will have been spent last year. I couldn't find the figures for Britain. I imagine it's slightly uh, down on that. But huge amounts uh, spent uh, on that. I, I just mean that because we're slightly fewer, not because I think we're any less romantic. Maybe we outdid them. I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe. But, you know, two years ago, £71.25 uh, was the average that people spent on Valentine's Day. Austerity measures, things have changed this year. Average, £22. It's gone down a little bit. Some of you might be thinking, that's four times as much as I spent. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure for you. I can't answer for you. But did you know this? Um, statistically, who receives the most number of Valentine's cards in the country? Do you know this? Apparently, teachers Teachers statistically are at the top of the top of the list. They just beat everyone. So, so number one, uh, teachers. Uh, number two, children. Number three, mothers. Number four is wives and girlfriends and boyfriends and husbands. Teachers are just way up, <laughs> way out in front. If you're feeling a little, you might want to think about a, a change of profession. I don't know. Teachers, they're all away on. A, they're probably on half term at the moment. Maybe some are here. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But teachers do well. Now, we get the idea, of course, from a day like Valentine's Day that um, that loving people is about uh, mainly being nice to them. You do good things to them. You're, you're nice to them. I wonder where uh, in your definition of what love is, I wonder where a rebuke might fit into that. <laughs> I wonder where rebuke telling someone off might fit into that. You might think those are those are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, you should never do that. That's by definition not being nice to someone, and love is by definition being nice to someone. You should never do something like that. Well, let me ask you, what would you think of someone who deliberately uh, didn't come to visit you? What would you think of someone who forcefully told you off? What would you think of a person like that? Would you think that they loved you? The Corinthians wondered whether Paul loved them. Because he had said that he had come to visit them, and he hadn't. And instead of that, a letter had dropped through the door of the church at Corinth. And it wasn't the nicest letter to receive. Now this uh, letter that's been written, it wasn't the first letter that had passed from Paul to the Corinthians. By, by the stage that we're at here in this book, there had been three letters before that. 
So the first one, Paul refers to in the book of 1 Corinthians as his previous letter, so there's the first letter. Uh, then there's the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what we call it, but it's the second uh, letter. And then between that letter and the one we've now got, 2 Corinthians, there was another letter. Paul sort of refers to it, people call it Paul's severe letter written to the church. And then here we are in this letter, the book of 2 Corinthians. Now this severe letter had, had called them to deal with a wild, rampant immorality that was spreading like a disease through the church. Uh, they were condoning it. And Paul called them to deal with it. But he spoke to them forcefully in that letter. And so because of the lack of the visit, because of the tone of the letter, the Corinthians wondered if Paul actually loved them. And that was fueled by a number of teachers who were around who were saying, this Paul, he doesn't actually love you. He's just in it for himself. You can't trust this guy, Paul. He doesn't love you. And Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians to say, I love you. I love you and I absolutely want the best for you. I've always wanted that. And so he writes this letter and really the first seven chapters are his defense of himself, laying out his concern for them. He, he says, in effect, I'm dying to give you life. I'm dying here to give you life. That's what I'm doing for you. And, and the summary really of what true love is as we look at it this evening is that it bears the cost so that others don't have to. That's what he says true love looks like. It bears the cost so that others don't have to. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm weak that you might be strong. I'm poor that you might be rich. I'm, I'm struggling here so that you might stand firm and be strong. That's what's going on. I love you, he says. And that's how we were when we were with you. We loved you. And there are three things, three ways that he shows that his love for them was true. And we'll see them as we go through that. The first is this, so different to the headings I've got down there, sorry. But the first is true love is uh, reliable. True love is reliable. Verses 12 to 22. Let's pick it up from verse 12. Uh, page 1158, if you've lost your place. Now, this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Now, everyone at the time was was boasting in, in Corinth People were boasting about their spectacular gifts and achievements. And so Paul uses that language uh, here. Uh, 22 times in the book of 2 Corinthians, he uses this word boast. It's another one of his big words. Half of the times that Paul ever uses that word happen in this letter. And Paul says, look, if we're going to talk about boasting, if we're going to talk about boasting, I've got nothing spectacular, no great gifts, no great achievements, but this is our boast. We were reliable in the way that we treated you. It's not very flashy, that, but we were reliable in the way that we treated you. And so verse 12 is really the, the theme of the letter in one way. We've treated you not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. Uh, we loved you God's way, not the world's way. We loved you God's way, 
and not the world's way. And in these verses 12 to 22, there are two things that he picks out that, that show that. He said, for a start, we said what we meant. We said what we meant. Uh, verse uh, 13. We don't write to you anything you can't read or understand. Word was going around, you see, that, that Paul sort of had this ulterior motive. He wrote a letter, but behind the scenes, he was very different. You know, he was sort of cloak and dagger sort of guy. And Paul says, no, it's not like that. Uh, we, we never wrote to you anything that you couldn't understand. There's no backstage script going on here. So, verse 14, I, I hope that, as you've understood us in part, you'll come to understand us fully. In other words, I, I hope that you won't just twist our words now, but that you'll receive the spirit of what we were saying and the content of it. Because, because he says, I have a picture in my mind. It's, it's the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 14. I have a picture in my mind. And on that day, this is what I long for. I, I see all of the people spread out before God who've trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. And you're there and I'm there. And I have a picture in my mind that, that I boast in you. I know I'll be doing that. I'll be saying, that's the Corinthian church who I love and delight in. That's the Corinthian church. And I, I long that in your mind, it, on that day, that you might do the same, that you might say, see that scarred old man over there, Paul? That's the guy who served us and we love him. That's, that's what I long for on that last day. Paul says, we, we said what we meant. We, we've not been deceptive with you in any way. And then in these verses as well, he, he meant what he said. He said what he meant and he meant what he said. Just look down at verse 15. This is what's going on. Let's follow it through. Because I was confident of this, of our special relationship, in other words, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. So I planned to visit you on the way to Macedonia and then come back. And then you'd send me on to Judea. Verse 17. When I did this, when I planned this, did I do it lightly? Do I make my plans in a worldly manner? In the same breath I say yes, yes, and no, no. Paul says we weren't vacillating when we when we said that to you. We weren't yes, 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 we'll come, but really secretly, no, 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 never, I was never going to come along. It wasn't like that. We weren't like that with you. We meant what we said. And I just pause and think, what? why is sort of vacillating, swapping back and forth, yes, yes, and no, no. Why is being fickle, you might call it? Why is that unloving? I mean, we all, we all would say, oh, fickle's unloving, but why? When, when you're fickle in your treatment of something, someone, it, it's unloving because, in effect, we protect ourselves from the cost and others bear it instead. That's what's going on. We protect ourselves from the cost and others have to bear it instead. So, so imagine. Uh, I say, uh, why don't we, why don't we go out and grab some dinner, uh, tomorrow night? How about it? Um, not all of you, but, um, why don't we, um, let's go, why don't we go to KFC? You know, uh, good, good night out, uh, Colonel's secret recipe. Is it 11 herbs and spices? I think it is. Anyway, let's, I say we'll go there, we'll go there. And I say, I say, yes, let's go tomorrow night. But in my mind, I don't tell you, in my mind, I'm thinking, if things change, I don't think I'm going to bother. 
I say yes, but, but really there's a no in there as well for me. But I don't tell you. And so tomorrow changes and I just, I pull out. What's happened? You bear the cost. You turn up. You expect a nice night at KFC and you're, you're disappointed. And I'm at home. Now, the, the, the difference is, if you say, uh, if you say yes, but in your mind you mean yes, then what you're saying is even if circumstances change, I'll bear the cost of getting there. That's what you're saying when your yes is a yes. Even if circumstances change, my word trumps circumstances. If it's, if you're fickle, circumstances will always trump your word. And there's a the think about it, it's the same in marriage. Some of you making vows in the next few months. What, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm making a promise for life, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. I'm saying even if circumstances change and things get worse, my word trumps the circumstances. If we're poorer, I'm giving you my word. I'm going to be there. I'm not going to move. I'm going to be there for you. If circumstances change, I'm giving you my word in that. That's that's what marriage is. You see, being fickle, the other person bears the cost. Being reliable, what you're saying is I will bear the cost. I will bear the cost to be there so that you don't have to bear that cost. And Paul is at pains to point out that that's how he treated the church. Why is he at pains to do that? Because his behavior, he knows, reflects what God is like. So just just see the logic of verses 17 to 19. He says, verse 17 in summary, our behavior was reliable. Verse 18, because our message to you is reliable. It's not yes and no. Because for, verse 19, for the Son of God, God is reliable. Do you see the, the logic of that, the link? Our behavior, we want, we want you to know that our behavior matches what our God is like. He's at pains to point that out. Because God is faithful. We've sung that a number of times this evening. God is faithful. He's reliable. And the example that Paul gives of that is, is from verse 20. He says, God has made hundreds of promises in the Old Testament for the good of his people. And no matter, verse 20, how many he's made, they're yes in Christ Jesus. Not maybe, not yes and no, but yes. They're yes from God. God is utterly reliable. And that's why we announce in Jesus Christ an amen to the world. That's why we say to the world, it's done in Jesus. God has been reliable. He sent his son as he promised to deal with the problem of this world. And that is how, verse 21 and 22, that is how God has established us. That's how he confirms and anoints us, seals us and gives us his spirit and guarantees what is to come in the future. Do you see how that works? For God to establish a people forever. He made promises and then he bore upon himself the cost of keeping those promises. That's how it works. That's what it means to be reliable. I wonder if you saw the, um, the good news story of the week. Wonderful story. I mean, there are, there are some hard things to watch on the news at the moment. Thursday night, I came in, I put the TV on, and there it was, the good news story at the end of the news of a little boy called Lula. I don't know if anyone saw that. An incredible story. 
Uh, Lola was a, a, a Chinese uh, boy who was abducted three years ago, uh, stolen from outside of the, the shop of his uh, parents. And he was taken far away. No one knew where he was. And his father made a promise in his mind. He, he said this. That's what they said in the news report. Father made this promise. No matter where you are, I will find you. No matter where you are, I will find you. Now, they, they set off on the, on the search and the government after about a, a year of, said that we're not going to find him. Where do you start with a boy? One boy in a billion people. Where do you start? But the father said, I made a promise. I'm going to keep going. And at great personal cost, financial cost, he's just kept going. Facebook, uh, Twitter, this is how you do it these days. And then this week, this week they found the little boy, Lilla, age six now, three years later. They found him. It's a remarkable reunion scene of this father who'd made this promise to find this boy and at great cost had kept going. Wonderful scene as he, the boy comes out with the, the authorities and the father just sweeps him up in his arms and hugs him and cradles him and then this wonderful party breaks out. This sort of scoffing cake and you say, wonderful! This is so you see these stories and it just melts your heart. For him to get his boy back, for him to establish his son at home again, he made a promise and then he bore the cost on himself to do that. And that's what God is like. God wanted to establish a people at home with him in a wonderful party. And for him to do that, he made promises. And for them to be yes, well, there was an obstacle. It was our sin and the judgment that ought to come that way. And so he said, I'll bear the cost myself. And so in Jesus Christ, he bore the cost so that we wouldn't have to on the cross in his son. That's what God is like. That's what true love looks like. It's reliable. It makes promises and then it keeps them at its own cost. God's like that. I wonder, could people say that we're reliable like our God? Our behavior will show them what our God is like. In the small and the big, I wonder if people could say that. Uh, when he said he'd do the dishes, he did. <laughs> when she said she'd call, she wasn't messing about, she meant it. When he, when she said for better, for, for worse, he meant that. She meant that. Can people say that we're reliable? That it costs us? like our God. True love is reliable. And secondly in these verses, true love may may rebuke. Verse 23. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So he says, God's my witness that we love you. We, we planned to visit you, and the reason we didn't was to spare you. And then he goes on, don't, don't mishear me. I'm not, I'm not trying to bully you. We're not, we're not lording it over you. We work with you for your joy. God has established us, but we know that it's by faith that you'll stand firm. And so we made decisions for your, for the good of your faith. That's why we made that decision. So verse, verse one of the next chapter. So I didn't visit. 
it was my judgment that another visit would intensify the problems. Because if I, if I grieve you, if I, if I'd come and our relationship had just been in tatters after that, you'd have just gone, well, I'm off. We're off. We don't need that guy, Paul, anymore. And I was worried for your faith. And so I wrote. I wrote instead of coming to you. Verse three. And I wrote as I did, verse three, with a severe tone, with sober content, because your sin was serious. Because I wanted you to sort things out. So that verse three, I shouldn't be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I wanted things to be sorted out so that when we came, we could just rejoice together and enjoy the joy of our friendship, of our relationship. I wanted your, I wanted your joy. That's what I was working for, that your faith might be strengthened. And when I wrote, when I wrote to you, there were tears streaming down my face. I didn't enjoy writing to you. It was awful. But I wanted you to know the depth of the love that I had for you. I wrote with many tears, not to greet, not to cause you pain. It's not what I ultimately wanted. I wanted your joy, your faith to grow. Because I loved you so much. <clears throat> Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't, don't assume that because I rebuked you, I, I don't love you. Don't assume that actually, but because I loved you, I had to confront you with these things so that your faith would be strengthened, so that you would be joyful again. It cost me to do that. There were tears down my face as I wrote to you. Now, it's a controversial area. What do you do? So disciplining children, how do you, how do you do that? What's the best way of doing that? It's a discussion um, people could have. But Paul is, Paul is saying, look, Imagine the scene, a father and a son. He's saying that, that, that phrase, it hurts me. You know, when a, you hear parents say, oh, this will hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And you go, really? Paul says, no. <laughs> um, nervous laughter. Um, Paul says, actually, that, that is the, that is the case. That can be the case. There can be a scene when a, when a father says, for your best, with tears down my face, I, I have to do this. It hurts me. It costs me emotionally. It hurts me emotionally more than it might hurt you physically for me to do this. Saying I wrote to you in this way. Not to grieve you. That wasn't my intention. I love you. And that's why I had to point these things out to you. Now what does that mean for us? It means don't assume that because someone rebukes you point something out, that, that therefore they don't love you. In fact, they may be the only one who loves you in that situation. It has to be done lovingly, of course, but often there are two reactions. Some of us, uh, some of us would, would run if we were ever rebuked by others or um, given a firm word by others. So someone says a firm word about a lifestyle choice that you're making. They say, don't... I love you. Don't go that way. Don't do that. And some of us would say, they don't love me. You don't love me. You're just out to bully me. I'm off. I'm off. I don't want to hear that sort of stuff from you. Well, that's the mistake the Corinthians were making. And Paul says, verse 24, no, no, no. I wanted your faith that you might have more joy. And I wrote with tears streaming down my face because I love you. So if that's you, please don't make that mistake. 
Please don't make the mistake that the Corinthians were making. Don't run just because someone rebuked you. Secondly, some of us run from rebuking others. We would say, oh, it can't, it's unloving to say a firm word to someone else, to point out a lifestyle choice, to call them back. But actually that can be just a form of self-protection, of, of loving myself, to prevent myself from the awkwardness of going through that conversation. See, those who love us will, will say these sorts of things lovingly with pain in their heart as they do that. But they may need to. And as I think about this, I don't know if this is true for you. My, my closest friends are those who over the years have said some hard things to me. I remember one conversation where I just played tennis with a friend. We got talking about things, a baking hut there. I can remember it to this moment. And we just got talking and it just became clear to him and he was right that there were certain things that I was proud about. And he just, he just said that. It seems to me, Matt, that you become proud in that area. He was absolutely right. Didn't thank him at the time. He was absolutely right. And because of the friendship, I knew that he loved me. I knew that it was awkward. Actually, it cost him to say that. It wasn't easy for him to say that. He bore the cost of that for my good. And I am thankful to him. True love may rebuke. May have to rebuke. Finally, true love longs to restore. True love longs to restore. Verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. And if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now it's hard to tell what the situation is here. It seems that there is some very influential troublemaker in the church of Corinth who's become an enemy or has Paul as his enemy. Maybe the guy from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the, the guy who um, is sleeping with his father's wife and everyone just thinks that's okay. Maybe that guy, it's hard to tell. But Paul wrote the letter to say, don't condone this, this sin amongst you, deal with it. And verse 6, the church have. They've dealt with it, they've acted. And now Paul says, it's enough. Uh, it's, it's enough, it's sufficient for him. And so I want you to forgive him. Five times that word forgive just keeps coming up in these verses. It's the, the key word here. And I want you to forgive them for, for two reasons. Because for a start, this guy may just feel excessive pain. It's the same word for grief in verse 5. Paul, Paul says, okay, I might have felt pain, but look, I don't want this guy to feel pain anymore. It'll be too much for him. You'll crush him. And then the second reason is he doesn't want Satan to get in in verse 11. I don't want Satan to outwit us in this situation. I mean, these are remarkable verses, actually, when you think that, that this is this is the guy who's been causing trouble for Paul. This is the guy who's his enemy, his nemesis, if, if you like. And Paul says, I, just watch out for this guy. The, the pain might be too much for him. Please, can you just sort it out? 
so that he's not overwhelmed by this, so that he's not in danger. You're not in danger of Satan getting in and exploiting this. It's remarkable desire to spare the pain for his enemy. Of course, where there's been a sin, to forgive costs. Paul is bearing the cost of forgiveness uh, in that. He's saying, I, I, I just want this dealt with so that this guy is forgiven and brought back. So the point is, look, if you have to rebuke, if you have to rebuke, long to restore. If you have to rebuke, long to restore. That's the purpose of it. That's what Paul wants most of all in this situation. He could have left this guy out in the cold given up on the relationship, wanted to take revenge on him. None of those things. He wants this guy restored and brought back in. I've been reading a, a book on this. I recommend it to you if this is a, an area of forgiveness you want to think through, called The Peacemaker by a guy called Ken Sand. Really helpful, uh, very practical. But he says as he talks about forgiveness uh, in our life, he says that to forgive uh, costs you because you're making a number of promises. Uh, he, he lists four. He says, uh, four promises you're making when you forgive. Uh, I will think good thoughts about you rather than dwell on the bad. Uh, I'll not try to hurt you by using this against you. Three, I'll, I'll never gossip about this to others. I choose to f- forgo that. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to bear the cost of keeping quiet instead. And I'll work on my friendship with you. Four things he picks out from the Bible in that. And, and he says, sometimes as you forgive someone, as you make that decision to do that, sometimes it's a, it's a one-off payment that, that you make. God in his grace helps you to move through that quickly. Other times, you have to keep making that payment. Some would know that. That you make a decision and you keep on having to forgive. You keep on making the payment so that they don't have to. You're not exacting it from them. You're bearing it yourself. And, and he says, so he lays out these four promises and he says, um, he says, let me put it simply. When I, um, when my children have done something wrong, my four year old, he says, when, when, uh, when that's the situation, this is what I do. I, I, I get them, uh, on my lap, in my arms. I remind them of the forgiveness that I have, uh, that we have in Jesus Christ. I, I give them a, I give them a great big hug. And then I, I summarize the, the promises in this little poem. And, and this is his summary of those, those things. A good thought, hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. That's the poem. That's the summary of those four things. I'll say them again. Good thought. I'm going to think good thoughts about you. Hurt you not, gossip never, friends forever. And he says, my favorite bit, the, the, the words I love to say out of those are friends forever. He says, I get my little child. I just say friends forever. It's dealt with. Friends forever. I, I long to restore. That's what I want. And Paul says the same. He highlights sin, writes a, a tough letter so that it can be dealt with. But he longs, he longs to restore. And we may, we may have to re- rebuke a friend. Some may have to rebuke a church. But uh, we'd be encouraged from these verses to point that out so that it can be dealt with, but to long that people would be restored, to be obsessive about restoration, to be obsessive about making sure that nothing gets in the way of that being sorted out when it's done. Because that's what God is like. God points out our sin, rebukes us, so that sin can be dealt with. But he longs 
that we'd be restored. That's why he does all of that, so that we'd be restored, if you like. God's favorite bit, God's favorite bit is the bit when he can say to someone, get them in his arms, on his lap and say, friends forever. That's what God is like. That's what he longs for. And he longs that we'd be the same. So what is, what is true love like? Well, true love bears the cost so that others don't have to. It goes the distance, it bears that cost to be reliable to people. It cries the tears of having to rebuke others. It bites the lip so that others can be forgiven. Are we like that? Actually, when you look at it and you think about it, actually you realize, I'm not. I'm not like that in the way that I love other people. Actually, we're not. But God is. He bore the cost on himself so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus Christ bore the cost of our sin on the cross in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Was reliable, rebuked, but longed that we would restore. And so as we'll sing in a minute, all honour, all honour to our God. That's what he's like. Immortal honours on Jesus' head because he's a God like that. We're nothing like that. But he forgives us in Jesus Christ. And then there is grace as we look at him to change. Grace this week that we might be changed so that this week we're more like our God. So that we bear the cost so that others don't have to. Let's pray. Our Father, you are so different, so other from what we're like in the way that we treat people. We want others to bear the cost so that we don't have to. But you bore the cost so that we wouldn't have to. Um, Lord, you've shown us that we're, we don't love people as we should do. We're not reliable towards them. When we rebuke, we often get things wrong and we don't love people as we should. Uh, forgive us and change us that in Jesus Christ we might be more like you, that the world this week would see in the way that we love others, are reliable, long for their restoration, that they might see in the way that we treat them something of how you treat us, and that they might join us in praising and worshipping you. In Jesus' name, amen.